Welcome to the Liberty Mindset. Come and explore some of the ideas and issues facing our liberty. 2022 is an election year. As libertarians, we ask that you consider voting in the Liberty Mindset. Welcome and thank you for your time. Okay, I'm live with the Liberty Mindset. We're live on YouTube, also on call-in. I'm going to be doing a little bit of reading. Um, I've often, you've heard of, many people have heard of the Mises Caucus, which is a libertarian group that uh, their hero is Ludwig von Mises, who was a uh, Austrian, then a later American economist, economist from the early 1900s, 1920, 1930. He wrote a book, he wrote several books. One of the essays I'm going to read now is called Planned Chaos. It was written in 1947 and revised in 1949. And I'm gonna be reading the introduction on the first chapter in hopes that maybe we can stimulate some conversation. Uh, I'm gonna con try to continue this once a week. Uh, I don't see any copyright problems with this, so also to be a good education for people. So, Planned Chaos by Ludwig von Mises. Introduc introductory Remarks. The characteristic mark of this age of dictators, wars, revolutions is its anti-capitalistic bias. Most governments and political parties are eager to restrict the sphere of private initiative and free enterprise. It is an almost unchallenged dogma that capitalism is done for and that the coming of all-around regimentation of economic activities is both inescapable and highly desirable. Nonetheless, capitalism is still very vigorous in the Western Hemisphere. Capitalist production has made very remarkable progress even in these last years. Methods of production were greatly improved. Consumers have been supplied with better and cheaper goods and with many new articles unheard of a short time ago. Many countries have expanded the size and improved the quality of their manufacturing in spite of the anti-capitalistic policies of all governments and of almost all political parties. The capitalist mode of production is in many countries still fulfilling its social function in supplying the consumers with more, better, and cheaper goods. It is certainly not a merit of governments, politicians, labor union offices that standard of living is improving in the countries committed to the principles of private ownership or the means of production. Not offices and bureaucrats, but big business deserve credit for the fact that most of the families in the United States own a motor car and a radio set. The increase in per capita consumption in America as compared to the conditions a quarter of a century ago is not an achievement of laws and executive orders. It is an accomplishment of businessmen who enlarge the size of their factories or build new ones. One must stress this point because our contemporaries are inclined to ignore it. Entangled in the superstitions of statism and government sorry, and government omnipotence, they are exclusively preoccupied with governmental measures. They expect everything from authoritarian action and very little from initiative of enterprising citizens. Yet, the only means to increase well-being is to increase the quantity of products. This is what business aims at. It is grotesque that there is 
uh, much more talk about the achievements of the Tennessee Valley Authority than about all the unprecedented and unparalleled achievement of an American privately operated processing businesses and industries. However, it was only the latter which enabled the United Nations to win the war and today enables the United States to become to the aid of the Marshall Plan countries. The dogma that the state or the government is the embodiment of all that is good and beneficial and that the individuals are wretched underlings exclusively intent upon inflicting harm upon one another and badly in need of guardian is almost unchallenged. It is taboo to question in the slightest way he who proclaims the godliness of the state and the infallibility of its priests, the bureaucrats, is considered as an impartial student of the social sciences. All those raising objections are branded as biased and narrow-minded. The supporters of the new religion of statolatry, statolatry are no less fanatical and intolerant than were the Bohemian conquerors of Africa and Spain. History will call our age the age of dictators and tyrants. We have witnessed in the last years the fall of two of these inflated supermen, but the spirit which raised these knaves to autocratic power survives. It permeates the textbooks and periodicals. It speaks through the mouths of teachers and politicians. It manifests itself in party programs and in plays and novels. As long as this spirit prevails, there cannot be hope of durable peace, of democracy, of the preservation of freedom, or of the steady improvements of the nation's economic well-being. Chapter 1. The Failure of Interventionism Nothing is more unpopular today than the free market economy, i.e. capitalism. Everything that is considered unsatisfactory in present-day conditions is charged to capitalism. The atheists make capitalism responsible for the survival of Christianity, but the papal encyclicals blame capitalism for the spread of irreligion and the sins of our contemporaries, and the Protestant churches and the sects are no less vigorous in their indictment of capitalist greed. Friends of peace consider our wars as an offshoot of capitalist imperialism, but the adamant nationalist warmongers of Germany and Italy indicated capitalism, indicted capitalism for its bourgeois pacifism, contrary to human nature and to the inescapable laws of history. Sermonizers accuse capitalism of disrupting the family and fostering licentiousness. But the progressives blame capitalism for the preservation of allegedly outdated rules of sexual restraint. Almost all men agree that poverty is an outcome of capitalism. On the other hand, many deplore the fact that capitalism, in catering lavishly to wishes of people intent on getting more amenities and better living, promotes a crass materialism. These contradictory accusations of capitalism cancel one another out, but the fact remains that there are few people left who would not condemn capitalism altogether. Although capitalism is the economic system of the modern Western civilization, the policies of all Western nations are guided by utterly anti-capitalistic ideas. The aim of these interventionist policies is not to preserve capitalism, but to substitute a mixed economy for it. It is assumed that this mixed economy is neither capitalism nor socialism. It is described as a third system, as far from capitalism as it is from socialism. Is it, alleged, it is alleged that it stands midway between socialism and capitalism, retaining the advantages of both and avoiding the disadvantage inherited in each. 
More than half a century ago, the outstanding man in the British socialist movement, Sidney Webb, declared that the socialist philosophy is, but the consciousness of the explicit assertion of principles of social organizations, which have been already in great part unconsciously adopted. And he added that the economic history of the 19th century was, quote, an almost continuous record of the progress of socialism, end quote. Footnote one. A few years later, an eminent British statesman, Sir William Harcourt, stated, quote, we are all socialists now, end quote. Footnote two. When, in 1913, an American Elmer Roberts published a book on the economic policies of the imperial government of Germany as conducted since the end of the 1870s, he called them monarchical socialism. However, it was not correct simply to identify interventionalism as socialism. They are many support, there are many supporters of interventionalism who consider the most appropriate method of realizing, step-by-step, step, full socialism, but there are also many interventionists who are not outright socialists. They aim at an establishment of the mixed economy as a permanent system of economic management. They endeavor to restrain, to regulate, to, in quote, improve, end quote, capitalism by government interference with businesses and by labor unionism. In order to comprehend the working of interventionalism and the mixed economy, it is necessary to clarify two points. First, if within a society based on private ownership of the means of production, some of these means are owned and operated by the government or by municipalities, this still does not make for a mixed system which would combine socialism and private ownership. As long as only certain individuals, I'm sorry, as long as only certain individual enterprises are publicly controlled, the characteristics of the market economy determine economic activity remain essentially unimpaired. The publicly owned enterprises, too, as buyers of raw materials, semi-finished goods and labor, and as sellers of goods and services, must fit into the mechanism of the market economy. They are subject to the law of the market. They have to survive after profits or at least to avoid losses. When it is attempted to mitigate or to eliminate the, this dependence by covering the losses of such enterprises with subsidies out of the public funds, the only result is in the shifting of a dependence somewhere else. This is because the means of the subsidies have to be raised somewhere. They may be raised by collecting taxes, but the burden of such taxes has, to has its effect on the public, not on the government collecting the tax. It is the market and not the revenue department, which assigns upon whom the burden of the tax falls and how it affects production and consumption. The market and its inescapable law are supreme. Second, there are two different patterns for the realization of socialism. The one pattern, we may call it the Marxian or Russian pattern, is purely bureaucratic. All economic enterprises are departments of the government, just as the administration of the army and the navy or the postal system. Every single plant, shop, or farm stands in the same relation to the superior central organization as a post office to the office of the postmaster general. The whole nation forms one single label army, labor army with compulsory service. The commander of this army is the chief of state. The second pattern, we may call it the German or Zweigerschwaft, Zweigerschwaft, sorry, system, differs from the first one in that it seemingly and uh, nominally maintains private ownership of the means of production, entrepreneurship, and the market exchange. So-called entrepreneurs to the 
buying and selling pay the workers contract debts and pay interest and amortization, but they are no longer entrepreneurs. In Nazi Germany, they were called shop managers or Beitersführer. The government tells these seeming entrepreneurs what and how to produce and at what price and from whom to buy, at what prices and to whom to sell. The government decrees at that what wages laborers should work and to whom and under what terms a capitalist should entrust their funds. Market exchange is but a sham. As all prices, wages, and interest rates are fixed by the authority, they are, they are prices, wages, and interest rates in appearance only. In fact, they are merely quantitative terms in the authoritarian orders determining which citizens' income, consumption, and standard of living. The authority, not to the consumers, direct production. The central board of production management is supreme. All citizens are nothing else but civil servants. This is socialism with outward appearance of capitalism. Some labels of the capitalistic market economy are retained, but they signify here something entirely different from what they mean in the market economy. It is necessary to point out that this fact to prevent a confusion of socialism and interventionism. The system of the hampered market economy or interventionism differs from socialism by the very fact that it is all that it is still a market economy. The authority seeks to influence the market by the intervention of, of its coercive power, but it does not want to eliminate the market altogether. It desires that production and consumption should develop along lines different from those prescribed by the unhindered market, and it wants to achieve its aim by injecting into the working the market orders, commands, and prohibitions. For whose enforcement the police power and its apparatus of coercion and compulsion stand ready. But these are isolated interventions. Their authors assert that they do not plan to combine these measures into a completely integrated system which regulates all prices, wages, and interest rates, and which thus places full control of production and consumption in the hands of the authorities. However, all the methods of interventions are doomed to failure. This means the interventionist measures must needs result in conditions which, from the point of view of their own advocates, are more unsatisfactory than the previous state of affairs they're designed to alter. These policies are therefore contrary to purpose. Minimum wage rates, whether enforced by government decree or labor union pressure and compulsion, are useless if they fix wage rates at the market level. But if they try to raise wage rates above the level which the unhampered labor market would have determined, they result in permanent unemployment of a great part of the potential labor force. Government spending cannot create additional jobs. If the government provides the funds required by taxing the citizens by borrowing for the public, it abolishes on the one hand as many jobs as it creates on the other. If government spending is financed by borrowing from the commercial banks, it means credit expansion and inflation. If, in the course of such an inflation, the rise of commodity prices exceeds the rise in normal wage rates, unemployment will drop. But what makes the unemployment shrink is precisely the fact that the real wage rates are falling. The inherent tendency of capitalist evolution is to raise real wage weights steadily. This is the effect of the progressive accumulation of capital by means of which technological methods of production are improved. There is no means by which the height of wage rates can be raised by all those eager to earn wages other than through the increase of their capital quota or capital invested. Whenever the accumulation of additional capital stops, 
the tendency towards a further increase in real wages comes to a standstill. If capital consumption is substituted for an increase in capital availability, real wage rates must drop temporarily until checks on the further increase of capital are removed. Government measures which retard capital accumulate or lead to capital corruption, consumption, I'm sorry, ca to capital consumption, such as confisca confiscatory taxation, therefore determining the vital interest of the workers. Credit expansion can bring about a temporary boom, but such a fictitious prosperity must end in a general depression or a trade slump. It can hardly be asserted that the economic history of the last decades has run counter to the pessimistic predictions of the economics, econ to the pessimistic predictions of the economists. Our age has faced great has has to face great economic troubles, but this is not a crisis of capitalism. It is a crisis of interventionalism, of policies designed to improve capitalism and to substitute a better system for it. No economist has ever dared to assert the interventionists could result in anything else than in a disaster and chaos. The advocates of interventionism, foremost among them the Prussian historical school and the American inter institutionalists, were not economics, economists, economists, sorry. On the contrary, in order to promote their plans, they flatly deny that there is any such thing as economic law. In their opinion, governments are free to achieve all they aim to without being restrained by any inexorable regularity in the sequence of economic, of economic phenomena. Yeah. Like the German socialist Ferdinand Lassalle, they maintain that the state is God. The interventionists do not approach the study of economic matters with scientific disinterestedness. Most of them are driven by an envious resentment against those who whose incomes are larger than their own. This bias makes it impossible for them to see things as they really are. For them, the main thing is not to improve the condition of the masses, but to harm the entrepreneurs and capitalists, even if this policy victimizes the immense majority of the people. In the eyes of the interventionists, the mere example of profits is objectional. They speak of profit without dealing with its corollary loss. They do not comprehend that profit and loss are the instruments of means by which the consumers keep a tight rein on all entrepreneurial activities. It is profit and loss that make the consumer supreme in the direction of business. It is absurd to contrast production for profit and production for use. On the unhampered market, a man can earn profits only by supplying the consumers in the best, cheapest way with the goods they want to use. Profit and loss withdraw with material factors of production from the hands of the inefficient and place them in the hands of the more efficient. It is their social function to make a man the more influential in the conduct of business, the better that succeeds in producing commodities for which the people scramble. The consumers suffer when the laws of, con the, laws of the country prevent the most efficient entrepreneurs from exposing the sphere of their activities. What makes some enterprises develop into big business was precisely their success in filling the best of the demand of the masses. Anti-capitalistic policies sabotage the operation of the capitalist system of the market economy. The failure of the interventionism does not demonstrate the necessity for adopting socialism. It merely exposes the futility of interventionism. All those evils which the self-styled progressives interpret as evidence of the failure of capitalism are the outcome of their allegedly beneficial interference with the market. 
Only the ignorant, wrongly identifying interventionism and capitalism believe that the remedy for these evils is socialism. Okay, that's the end of chapter one. So, Ludwig von Mises tells us that interventionism is a tough way to roll. Um, interestingly enough, all of that was written in 1949, and uh, it's amazing how, how true it, is, it, it still eliminates today. Um, I'm going to continue these readings over the next couple of weeks, see if anybody's interested. Oh, Meathead, what have we here? I see a bunch of stuff. Does that anything, any of it have anything to do with economics? Not really. Okay. Hey, William. Hear me? Yep. Well, I don't know. I would say the World Economic Forum and the UN collaborations on policy have a lot to do with economics. You want to talk economic principles and free market economy, I mean, there is no free market. It's True. totally manipulated by, by the uh, transnational corporations and the Princeton... Um, this Northwestern uh, study by Professor Gillens and Page, respectively, 20-year study proved it, that uh, votes don't even matter because it's all manipulated by the lobbyists and, uh, you know, and on behest of the transnational corporations. So I don't know. There is no free market. They buy the, the legislation they need to get the tax breaks they need to be able to outsource, to money launder, to do whatever the hell they want. Well, money. what you're describing is accurate, um, but the question, my question is, according to Mr. Von Mises, okay, which is what I was reading, um, yeah. even if there is some modicum of free market, that still is what pushes the market, and we see that today, okay? Anything, the least regulated markets are the things where things are produced more, less expensively, more affordably, and easy to easy to manage. Now, in all the markets that are re highly regulated or are as are intervent or are intervened by the government, we see exactly the opposite. So the point of reading this is to give people an opportunity to see, yes, the World Economic Forum um, and the meeting of the large corporations and the governments, okay, which is what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, the governments and the large, or, large corporations dictating what they can do um that's what's destroying that is what is destroying our free market and will cause the collapse for example one of the biggest example the easiest examples to point to is the is the internal combustion engine and um catalytic converters okay congress requires catalytic converters on internal combustion engines okay they require it because they want to get a certain amount of em certain kinds of emissions regulated in the vehicles. Well, what would happened, what would have happened if instead of requiring catalytic converters, they had just said, here's the emissions that can come out of the car and stopped there, requiring cars to meet that standard. Well, we could have had a dozen different ways to meet that standard 
and possibly something more fuel efficient than better than what we have now. Now we're scrambling to find electric cars to try to reduce our carbon footprint. And they're going to regulate those electric cars so that they're going to have all the same kind of outputs. And we're going to be stuck with the same thing, high-priced cars that really don't work that well. Well, I think that uh, you're taking a snapshot. If you look at the technologies that's been repressed uh, over the last 120 years from uh, hydrothermal carbonization, which is obviously who was at uh, Friedrich, uh, what's his last name? Uh, drawing a blank. Anyway, I'll keep talking. Maybe it'll come to me. Um, Burgos, I think it was, uh, where they could use have used all kinds of manure uh, using this hydrothermal carbonization technology. He uh, described it in 1913 uh, to create a clean biofuel in a coal-like uh, uh, substance. Um, we only have one plant in Pennsylvania right now, Somax, that's doing that. I think there's maybe two in Europe. Mm-hmm. Well, we got... We can also, and that would have created. Well, for first of all, diesel's engine was built to burn peanut oil uh, on farms. Um, So, uh, but of course, the big you're ignoring the fact that that the big uh, transnational corporations have snapped up a lot of technology, bought out and and shelled a lot of it, uh, and some would argue a lot of Nikola Tesla's technologies. if for pure profit, you know, to maximize profit. Well, you know, a free market economy, uh, profit at all costs is not necessarily the most beneficial thing. Okay, well, pro- oh, 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 oh. stop right there, stop right there, stop right there. The free market economy is not a profit at all costs, okay? It can't be. That was part of Mises's point, okay? if A, a true free market economy where people will compete for people uh, for people, they have to make a better product. They have to make it faster. They have to make it more economically. Okay. It's a different, the goal is to make profit. Sure. Guaranteed. But in so doing, they have to make sure they make things better and more efficiently. What you're describing is our multinational corporations supplied by our government through tax write-ups and all kinds of things who do these things under the systemic, um, uh, the systemic suppression by the government. No, no, no. the government, the, the politicians are puppets for the transnational corporations. It's not the other way around. We have inverted totalitarianism. We do not have uh, fascist uh, political leaders that are dictating the, the, the transnational. I, I, corporations. I might disagree with you a bit, but I mean, I, I also think there could be, there could be a debate where it goes both ways. But um, part of me is that these people are all, you know, they're all sitting in the same houses, sitting and smoking the same cigars, talking the same thing. And which came first, the corrupt politician or the multinational corporation? Eh. I mean, I can point all the way back to the uh, when we built the train, you know, the uh, Intercontinental Railroad. You know, that, yes. that's that's a big point of where this whole government support of, of large business started and it made it worse. Well, I would I would suggest that they they are one and the same people. They 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 uh, promote who gets elected, uh, what bills are passed, and uh, it, it's a collaboration. That it's it's you know I, I don't see a separation. Really. Well, I mean, I, and and I, I and for a lot of it, I don't see a separation either. But then the question comes okay. back to whose fault is that, and that comes back to us, the elected, the electors. No. 
No, no, no. Our votes, again, go back to the 20 year study, the Princeton uh, uh, Northwestern study. That's not true. Our, we are the, 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 we're corporate captured, and it's been that way for a very long time. We can go back to the Federal Reserve, uh, the formation of even the uh, First Bank and Second Bank of America. We, we were completely corporate captured. And so you're, and so you're, so you're, well, let me understand what you're saying is that there is, I mean, if nobody voted, we'd have the same results. Well, what there's, I didn't, I'm not the author of the Princeton Northwestern I'm asking study, you, William. I'm not asking the author of the Princeton. I'm asking what you understood from that paper is that if, if, if everybody were, if people were to actually vote differently and vote for representation that wasn't held by corporate, then they, there is no way on earth they could ever win because Donald Trump was supposed to win because why? Well, there's a lot of evidence that the, the electorate and the results of the elections are highly rigged and manipulated, uh, uh, whether it be through uh, jur jury uh, mandering, uh, uh, pick a technique. I mean, um, well, and, and I'm trying. What I'm trying to promote is picking a technique to resolve that problem. Okay, so right. my point well, is, is, is so if we don't, you know, so what, what can you do? to stop that the the corporations from owning the vote what can you do what can we do as a populace to be very honest with you um what i've seen uh for example when ross perot was running i was in santa barbara and i joined the local chapter and i was at a booth out on the cabrillo boulevard during the art festivals i got permission by the art festival director and a lot of people were signing petitions and wanted to see a change. Ross was talking about, you know, we don't want NAFTA uh, because it's going to outsource jobs. Um, yep, and, absolutely. Uh, I remember and, that. And well, I voted for him, and then because I voted for him, we got Bill Clinton instead of uh, Herbert Walker Bush. Which, yeah, which exactly. one would have been better? I don't know. Well, well, Bush's ex, his father was CIA. Well, Bush was CIA. I mean, you know what I mean? This, okay. And then we had Al Gore. Did he win the video? Did he not uh, win the vote in Florida, which would have swung it? I would suggest he did, but the the, the electorates. Uh, okay, you can, you can well, suggest that, but the fact of the matter is, every way they recounted those votes, he did not. So, you know, you can okay. suggest what you want. It's just the reality is, when the votes were counted, he did not. Let's agree to disagree. You can spend all your time voting and rallying votes, and I will tell you what, in the bigger picture, it ain't going to make a damn bit of difference. Okay. Ever since trickle-down economics, it's been a $50 trillion wealth transfer up to the rich, and this whole last three years has been more the same on steroids. So the, every time there's a boom-bust cycle, they bail out themselves, the, the corporate uh, entities. Uh, they buy the votes. They it, It's totally rigged uh, to a point now where... I would suggest where people want to focus more on crowdsourcing, maybe that's the best way to go on a grassroots level. I certainly tried the courts. I found that, like George Carlin would say, the state houses, courthouses. Well, you we're know, seeing that in Arizona right now. What's that? We're seeing that in Arizona right now. What's happening in Arizona? Well, your your point that the courts aren't working with the electors to have a fair election. There's a lot of right. contention about between Carrie Lake and uh, what's her face Hobbs, and mm. you know they're they're actually finally getting to court because some things have come to light that were literally illegal. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, but I also, like you, I can, can't really trust the courts because most of the time they're appointed by people who just wanted to fail. So my question is, what can, you know, you talk about grassroots, you flip off this, that, and the other thing. My question is, what can you do in your locality, Virginia, wherever, um, to make yes, sure the yes. votes are fair? Well, first of all, when you say I flip off, I came to this, I'm 62, I came to this conclusion over my life witnessing, like I said, I, I tried and I, I pushed and I was involved with Rossboro's local chapter in, San, in um, Santa Barbara. And then, of course, I was all believing hope and change, the, the, the populist uh, message we got from Obama. And then we learned later that uh, the FOIA emails revealed it was basically Chase Morgan chose his cabinet. And then when you look at Trump, he runs on a populist message. And Steve Mnuchin, the foreclosure king, becomes his treasury secretary. And Kamala Harris wouldn't go after him as AG of California. Uh, then you had, let's look at, you pick the cabinet of any presidency and you see one thing. You see a revolving door, right, between K Street, the, 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 the presidency, and the private corporations and the military industrial congressional complex. So when you ask me what we can do, uh, I, I also listen to Sabby Sabs and I've talked to her a couple of times and I agree with her. She's like, I'm not spending the majority of my time on politics anymore. I'm going to start with the grassroots, this crowdsourcing concept. I think that's a good idea. I think we need to come together on a one-on-one you know, neighborhood, uh, local, organizational type grassroots movement uh, because I've given up on, personally, I've given up on the electoral process. I, I filed four lawsuits. I sued three law, law, law firms. I sued giant corporations, including American Express. This pro se, I sued uh, hotel industry because of certain contractual violations, et cetera, et cetera. I even went after probate court fraud situation. And let me tell you something, Greg. There were regulatory bodies like the DOJ Task Force on Corruption that indicted and, and convicted the CPA, my father's probate matter. But then Trump got elected, eviscerated that task force. And none of the judges went down, not the executor. We, we have, when you look at the media and you look at, say, cares a lot, I cares a lot the Netflix thing on guardianship, conservatorships, and the probate courts. The media portrays the real-life scenarios sometimes. Mm -hmm. But when we try and expose it, you get very, very little uh, cooperation with, uh, with the government because it's captured. Um, that's my experience, even when I fought the Catholic Church. Um, and uh, so uh, I don't have the answers okay. at this point. I, my suggestion would, would be, uh, well, all you have to do if you want to see the, the courts captured is look at the Steve Dodzinger, uh, Chevron, uh, Ecuadorian matter. And you just see the federal courts are just as corrupt as the state courts. And you can go back to the movie Civil Action regarding Wilburg, Massachusetts, and the pollution of groundwater and the death of and sickness of a lot of people, Aaron Brockovich. You, the, the the predatory elite, that's how I refer to them, they're parasites, use our tax dollars. They they control the system to such a degree now to even the courts are uh, basically been eviscerated and neutered 
as George Carlin said, the courthouses, the state houses, the legislatures, it's all bought out. Well, my and, personal experience. And, there, and there's a lot of truth in that. Having said that, um, mm -hmm. I'm also going to point out that over the last two years, there have been an awful lot of Supreme Court decisions, which has literally had a chance to change our society. And lower courts are starting to, lower federal courts are starting to use that decision as well. So things are slowly changing. Is it enough? Is it too little too late? Maybe. Um, but on the other side of the coin, I really think it has to do with whom we elect. Now, if elections are rigged, then we need to fix that, granted. And, you know, your, your idea of a, of a parallel economy or a local economy, that is the way to fix it by making sure that everything we do within our touch is something that can be put forward. So yeah, I, you know, we can, we can agree that I need, we need to look at local economies. We need to look, try to look at, I'm trying to um, find some farmers here in, in the Hillsborough area, you know, affected wow. by some of the supply chain issues so we can talk about what we can actually do to fix that. Yeah, that's a great idea. I, I used to, um, when I was in Santa Barbara, I used to sell for farmers at farmer's market. I got involved in the farmer's market groups. They were very against uh, the USDA organic certification because it waters down uh, that whole process. Um, uh, you know, at, at this point, um, I'm in kind of a unique situation where I'm disabled, I'm housebound, I need multiple surgeries. So I'm not really the person uh, who can, I mean, I can do calling, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, can't get to court anymore. Um, so I'm disabled at this point. I, I fought as long as I could to the point where I couldn't drive anymore safely and right. get into court. The Access to Justice Commission, which should have signed me attorneys, never did, and mm -hmm. they wouldn't. They're, they're, they're captured. I, I couldn't give them to cooperate. Every state has one. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, the the worst thing I would have to say was the disappointment from the state and federal agencies that are supposed to be there for the disabled. Uh, Connecticut Legal Rights Project and Disability Rights Connecticut, uh, state and federally funded respectively. Um, they're captured. They they didn't lift a finger. Even mm -hmm. state legal services. That, uh, and that's why we see that, uh, you know, as Jimmy Dore reports, 30% of the homeless people are disabled in children. You know, literally. Yeah. Psychiatric disabilities. Um, and Bernie Sanders, of course, we all had high hopes for him. We saw what happened with the DNC. That was disgusting. What uh, they, um, uh, that whole process. Uh, well, the DNZ specifically is is I mean, and the and the RNC is not any really not any better. They just reelected a person who has done nothing for their organization as their president for the, you know the third term. So um, you know it's it, it, you know and they're both kind of they're for the most part there's uniparty, but as yeah. as was proven with the um, election of the Speaker of the House, even a small number can make a difference. They managed to get some rule changes that are really incredible and may could that could make a difference the question is a will they stay they won't if the party if the house changes or, or the flavor of the house just cha change let me put it that way meaning that more uniparty members get in versus those that are willing to fight and, and stand up and say no and that is my point as part of my point is that in looking at just what happened this january with the establishment of the new speaker yes he sucks no question about it He's not uh -huh. the person that anybody would want. And he was forced to change some rules to make it easier 
for the smaller groups to be able to have some force and be able to have some, yeah. you know, some change. So yes, it's small and it's incremental and there needs to be a whole lot more. But thank you very much, yeah. William. Appreciate it. Let me ask you, what do you think happened? I mean, I'm, I really thought the Justice Democrats and the squad, when they really could have stuck together and forced the vote and done a lot of things, what happened? I, I, do you think when people, I'm just throwing this out there, they get indoctrinated. It's like, look, either you're going to go along with the party uh, uh, plan or you, in the next election cycle, you will no longer be uh, in the House of Representatives. Is it? Well, a, and is that's it, true for that's been true for both parties. Okay, it's been somewhat yeah. true. There was a lot of people who were not supported by the RNC, who you know really should have been and could have won and made a difference. But they, since they weren't part of the Uniparty, you know, right. the, the, they they were you know they were shunned. Um, now. You know, with it, what I find entertaining, everyone ta- points to the Republican and how disorganized they were during the during the vote for the speaker. You know, all I have to say is if five Dems had turned around and voted for McCarthy, it would have been over in no time. No, no they wouldn't have changed any rules. It, you know, it, it, but they had to stick with their party guy because that's the way they are. So they 100 percent of the time voted the same way, voted exactly the same thing for something they knew could not happen. And then. Yeah. So 20, 20 guys got together and, uh, and said, these are the rules we want changed. And when it came uh-huh. down to it, even the ones that said they couldn't vote for McCarthy, they ended up abstaining just so the vote would pass. But, right. you know, there, there was, there, and that's the same kind of thing that happens whenever you have a deliberative body. I mean, the Constitution was founded with two states abstaining because the two states couldn't vote against slavery. Uh-huh. Yeah, I it's I don't know what else to say. My father's bike shop building got foreclosed on during the pandemic. Uh, if you're more than two years behind your taxes, mm-hmm. they you didn't qualify for the CARES Act. Uh, it took me two and a half years to get a SSDI hearing. Uh, Ten thousand people a year die in that process. I luckily had some people help me make ends meet. Otherwise, I had gone to the homeless shelter at one point. Um, as a disabled person, we got here. I'll just wrap it up by saying uh, Connecticut Post a couple of weeks ago, people living under the 95 Coastal Highway overpass, one guy disabled like me on SSDI. Uh, another person has Section 8 vouchers. There's no housing available. I'm, I'm on waiting lists. It could be, I just got a letter back from the Stratford Housing Authority. You know, uh, well, you're on the waiting list, you know, could be every year we'll let you know if you're up for where to the point where even you get chosen for them to even to begin the true application process mm-hmm. you see what i'm saying yeah and this is this is america you know and uh, uh well sort of yeah i don't know what to say it's it's um it was for my brother help me out there's no way i can make ends meet thank god for and, family yeah you know, but the, I worked here my whole life. And let me say, anyone applying for SSDI, they only go back 10 years into your work history. I didn't know that. And so then when I finally applied, the judge found me retroactively disabled back to March 2012. But as a result, my SSDI benefits are based on 37 months of income, not 110. They don't mm-hmm. go back on your whole life. Yep. And so that's why I get the minimum. Jesus Christ, who knew? You know, I spent my own money, you know, because I was Italian kind of stubborn. I was like, oh, maybe I don't really need to go through SSDI. Let me see, get these surgeries done. And, you know, 
but that's been held up for another reason. And and this is the long of it is I'm like, what about an ADA reasonable accommodation when the judge finds you're disabled from March 2012? Shouldn't we go back 10 years from there? Nope, it's from date of application. What? Yeah. So just a tip for anyone who knows anyone who's because what happens is towards when you get your disabilities get more progressive, apply early is all I can say to people. You can always reapply. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the message. And I, I appreciate your time, Greg. All right, brother. You have a good day. Hey, Thank Terry you. Barnes. The na- The more I learn about AOC, the more I think she was a fraud from the start. Yeah, that's true. That is very true. We're talking economics today. Um, I read the first chapter of uh, Ludwig von Mises' book, Planned Chaos. I read the introduction in the first chapter. And uh, William and I were, you know, chatting about it a little bit. And if anybody else wants to go, otherwise, maybe I'll call it a day and let this go on to be a podcast. So if you wanted to listen to, if you missed the reading, um, you can come back and read it. I'm going to try to do this every Wednesday for the next few weeks until the book's done. Uh, next week, we'll be looking at chapter two um, from Edwin von Mises and having a little chat about economics and capitalism. I'd like to thank everybody for being here today. And this podcast will also be available uh, tomorrow on most major podcast uh, platforms, Spotify, Google, Apple. And also it is going to be available live on Rumble this afternoon. You'll see a video of this. And thank you all. Unless there's somebody who's going to sneak up there really quick, I'm going to thank you all for coming. And let us all remember to seek the truth and stay curious.